Psalm 51, verses 1 through 19. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure, Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices. In burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, bow on your heads and let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for my friends, uh, for the saints here at King's Cross Church, and um, just for... Um, Really, uh, just the, the gift that um, having the last five weeks off has been for me and uh, the blessing it's been for our church to have um, just other brothers from our church uh, teaching and friends from uh, outside the church. God, we're just reminded uh, that you are at work in big ways, um, not only in our midst, uh, but just around us. Um, and we just consider it a great privilege to be a part of your uh, sovereign work in our community. And so, um, Lord, we're just thankful. Uh, and I pray, God, that you would now bless um, the preaching of your word, uh, that it might encourage us, sharpen us, and bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, man, it like, I feel like it got five degrees cooler. Is that, is that just me because I'm up here, or that happened for everybody? Um, no, just me. Uh, bummer, you guys. Uh, it feels good up here. So um, I'll tell you all about it after. Uh, so uh, we are, are, are finishing our, our Summer Psalms uh, series. Psalm 51 is where we're going to be at today. Uh, the topic that we're unpacking is one that I'm super passionate about. Um, it's one of those topics that, 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 that really challenges us. Maybe it might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable at times, right? This, this topic of surrendering. This topic of repentance. Um, and it makes me think about how when I was around like 19 years old, that's when I started uh, going to church. That's when I started reading my Bible. I came to faith at 19. Uh, but my process of following Jesus, of growing spiritually, it kind of needed a kickstart. 
right? Like I remember asking the guy who was discipling me and teaching me all about the Bible. I remember sitting down with him and asking him why I didn't seem to experience as much change in my life as I thought I would. And he asked me this, this question. He goes, hey, Chris, like, who would you say runs your life? And I'm thinking, like, what kind of question is that? Like, I do, of course, right? Like, I run my life. And he goes, look, that's the problem. That's the problem. See, he said Jesus wants to be more than just, like, your Savior. He's more than just your ticket into heaven. He also wants to be your Lord. He wants you to surrender to him with all that you are. And from this point on, your whole life is going to be shaped by that growing in understanding what that means, surrendering yourself over to him. And, and really, that's what repentance is. That's what repentance means. It's about surrendering over to Jesus all of who you are, turning away from sin and turning back to him again and again. So that's what we're talking about, that turning from sin and turning to Jesus again and again. We're talking about repentance, and we're going to look at Psalm 51, which is uh, kind of like the psalm, the passage of Scripture on repentance. So again, in a nutshell, our definition for repentance is turning away from sin and turning back toward Jesus in surrender. The reformer Martin Luther, he said that the Christian life is a life of repentance, in other words, it's not just something that we do at the start of your Christian life, but it's something that the Spirit causes us to do when we're converted. And from that point on, it's this posture that you take on, that you then maintain for the rest of your life. And here's, here's why like, I think it's so important for us to, to talk about repentance this summer. It's that if you're going to experience just the true and deep joy of what it looks like to know Jesus. If you're going to experience the joys of knowing Jesus, then repentance is key to that. It's so central to that. And if our church is going to be all that God has called us to be in our culture, then repentance is key to that too. So let me just get this major assumption out of the way. Uh, like if, you, if you're coming here this afternoon and if you believe that Jesus died for your sins and that because he died for your sins that you therefore don't have to think about your sins, you don't have to, to think about them or you don't have to repent, then you're not really trusting in Jesus as your savior. What you're doing is you're using him as an excuse. And look, he, he's not... He's not okay with that. He's not down with that. Like, he won't play along with our, with our silly games. And that's what Jesus, this, this whole idea of, 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 of uh, like trying to move on from our sin where we don't think about it anymore, we don't talk about it anymore, we don't even search our hearts for it anymore. Like Jesus calls that having a posture of hypocrisy in the gospels. That's the word he uses for it hypocritical faith, and he warned that it's deadly and dangerous. And so it's not so much that the gospel, it's that the, the gospel doesn't remove the need for us to repent. It actually provides the need, right? You catch that? The gospel doesn't remove our need for repentance. It actually provides the need because the gospel shows us that you can confess your sins no matter what they are. 
The Bible tells us you can confess your sins because Jesus died for them. He died for them all. You can bring him anything and know that he will receive you. And so we're going to look at this key passage on repentance, Psalm 51, and four areas that repentance makes all the difference in. It's our head, our heart, our hands, and our heritage. Our head, speaking about the intellect, referring to the thoughts that we have about who we are and how we're doing. Um, The heart, referring to how we feel about our sin. Uh, our affections, our emotions, our hands referring to how we live. Uh, like what is it that we do now that we've, with what we've learned, uh, our behavior, and then our heritage, which has to do about just uh, the culture that we embody, the culture that we pass on and the impact that we leave on others and on future generations. And so let's look at each of those one by one. Repentance, again, is all about surrender. And number one, we see that repentance requires surrendering your head. You surrender your head. You change in your thinking. You surrender your thoughts to the Lord, admitting that God knows what is true and right best, and we don't. Look at what Psalm 51 says, beginning in verse 1. David is praying here, and he says, Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is is ever before me. It's always in front of me. You see, part of what it means to surrender your, your thought life over to Jesus is owning owning what God says about our sin and seeing that, that, that he says, I'm going, or, or it's, it's about us saying, I'm going to think about my sin the way that, that God does. And notice the language that David uses here. He says five times in verses one through three, five times in three verses, he says, this is my sin, my transgression, my iniquity, my transgression, again, my sin. David refuses to shift blame, which is what he was doing before. You see, repentance requires a change in the way that we think, a, way that, a change in the way that we think about what's wrong with us. Here, David refuses to look for excuses. He owns his sin, and he doesn't try to hide it. Look, the Bible says that as fallen creatures, our tendency is to minimize or make excuses for sin, just like our first parent, Adam, did. But when we do that, we just add into the problem. We're just adding to the problem. Man, when I was a, when I was a, a, a kid, this is like uh, one of the worst things I've ever done. When I was a, a kid in grade school, uh, uh, my, my mom, she used to, she was a working mom, right? I had two working parents, and, and my mom used to make these uh, sandwiches for me um, every night. Like, she'd come home late from work, and, you know, she couldn't be there to help me with my homework and all this other stuff, but it's like she, she like, wanted to make these, salam, these, these sandwiches for me. Uh, and so she made me these bologna sandwiches. Um, only problem is I hate bologna sandwiches, right? Uh, but I did not have the heart to tell my mom that. And so she made me these bologna sandwiches, uh, and because I was such a coward, I didn't want to tell my mom that I didn't like her bologna sandwiches, um, what I did was I, uh, I would take uh, my lunch... Uh, and I would and I'd hide it in my closet. Um, and I just kept piling on there. And so next thing you know, I've got like this knee-high pile of bologna sandwiches uh, piling up in, in, my, in my closet. Uh, and our 
our, our housekeeper, our house cleaner, you know, she, she finds it one day because, uh, you know, she's a, she's a good house cleaner. And she finds this stack of bologna sandwiches and she's like, what? Like she's rightfully confused, right? Trying to figure out what's going on. And she, she tells my parents uh, about it. And um, man, my mom was like heartbroken. Um, and I mean, I, mean, I could have just like saved so much of her heartache if I just told her like, hey, look, I don't want this. I want something else, right? But, like I was like not eating the lunch she made me and like, uh, like uh, just taking lunch from like all my friends at school. So not only like was I not eating my, my mom's sandwiches, but then like all my friends' parents thought that my parents didn't feed me, right? Like it was this huge, huge mess. And you see, no matter how out of sight, out of mind, we try to make our sins and the things that we're embarrassed by, the things that bring us shame, like you, you can't escape them. You can't escape them. And I'm wondering how many of us come to church, sign up for a group, but never deal with our real issues. We never really deal with our sin. Like we show up, we sing the songs, we raise our hands, we laugh over dinner with our group. But meanwhile, there's like a real sin issue that you need to deal with. Nobody knows, but you know. And instead of repenting, we play these religious games to make ourselves feel better, to sort of push it off to the side. Now let's, let's be the kind of people that just, we just say no to that. Let's be the kind of church that says no to that. Like, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. We're not going to not deal with our sin. Let's, let's own our sin and let's surrender it to God. And I make it sound so easy when I say that, but, but you know that it's not, right? You know why? It's because we're, we're so used to, we're so used to lying. When we talk to people, especially for the first time, it's like we try to make ourselves look and come across better than we really are, Right? It's like, it might not be explicitly hiding sin, but it's like we're, we're sort of playing games, like, like trying to excuse uh, why we're, we're, we're sort of fronting uh, with this, this image that we know doesn't actually reflect the reality. We hide our sin. We play it down. We blame it on someone else. Look at David in this text. He's not pretending away his sin, is he? No, he's done with that. He's owning it. He's surrendering to God. Look at verse three. He says, my sin is ever before me. It's always in front of me. You can almost imagine David replaying specific sins that brought him to this point. By the way, how many of you are familiar with the actual situation that brought David to this point? With Bathsheba, right? You know what his big sin was? Uh, He had hooked up with, he had shacked up with Bathsheba, a woman who was not his wife. David is this, he's the king of Israel. He's living it up. He's on the roof of his castle and he's looking down over his kingdom, literally looking down over his kingdom. And he sees this girl, Bathsheba. She's taking a bath on her roof. And, you know, just just so you understand the situation, like you don't, you don't usually take a bath with your clothes on, right? Like if you, if you do, that's weird, right? Uh, Never nudes, right? You're like you don't you don't do that. But David's up there. David's up there though, and he's and he's checking her out like the creep that he is. And just to be clear, should he be checking her out? No, absolutely not. This woman's not his wife. 
He's married, she's married, she's bathing. Doesn't matter if it's up close. Doesn't matter if it's from far away. Doesn't matter if it's from a rooftop. Doesn't matter if it's from your phone. You don't check out the body of someone that you're not married to. And making matters worse, David has his guards bring this girl over to him. He says, hey, I want that. Go get her. Bring her over to me. And then he seduces her, gets her pregnant. And when David finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant, he gets her husband, who's a soldier in his army, and he takes that soldier, uh, Uriah, and he sends him to the front lines of war so that he'll be killed to try and cover up the mess that he's made, gets him murdered, tries to get away with adultery, thinking nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to find out. And then God, in his kindness, God in his mercy, God in his grace sends a friend to David who loves David, who is for David, but he's not too impressed by David that he's unwilling to have hard conversations with David and call him out on his sin. That friend's name is Nathan. Everyone, every single one of us needs someone like Nathan in their life. And if you don't have one, you should find one. But here's David and Nathan has been sent by God to call him out on his sin. And this Psalm, Psalm 51, is David's prayer of repentance after his sin has been exposed, after his friend forces him to deal with it. And he says right there in verse three, I know, David says, I know my transgressions. I know the ways that I've transgressed against God's laws. My sin is ever before me. It's, I can't unsee it. And he says in verse four, against you, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words, so you may be blameless in your judgment. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And just to be clear, when he says in sin did my mother conceive me, he's not ragging on his mom, right? What he's saying is, he's saying, I've had this bent towards sin. I've had this bent to look out for only number one, for just me. I've always had this bent since before I was born. It's part of my nature from the moment I was conceived. You see, what we see in these verses, these first few verses, that David's whole way of thinking has changed. Everything that we saw him doing uh, to, to, to kind of maneuver the situation, to get away from having to deal with his sin, to, 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 to try and say like, well, if I just do that, then I don't have to deal with this. Or if I do this, if I get Uriah killed, you know, he's doing all of these things. And all of a sudden his thinking changed and he's like, no, I've transgressed against God. I can't stop. I can't unsee the sin that I've done. His thinking about his sin has changed. He knows his specific sins, but he also knows that behind his sinful actions was a sinful motivation that's always plagued his heart. Before he could even commit physical adultery, he had committed spiritual adultery against God in his heart. You see, our behavior, our behavior, whether good or bad, it always flows out of our deepest desires. It flows out of our truest nature. For example, like when I get when I get anger, like snap and lash out at my kids, it's 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 because like I want what I want when I want it, right? And I'm getting impatient, right? Like they like this something about this situ situation is making me feel like I'm not in control, and so I lash out, right? 
when I choose not to show up for my responsibilities, it's because I'd rather live for comfort than for Christ. You see, our problem is that we're so tempted to point outside of ourselves for the reason that we sin. Ah, you don't know my parents. You don't know, you don't know what my husband's like. You know how crazy my wife is. You don't know how difficult my, my kids are. You don't know how difficult my boss is, how hard my job is. You haven't experienced my family of origin. You haven't experienced my, my hard and difficult circumstances. You just don't know. You just don't know. Like, that's what we say. And so what we see in David is he prays something that's countercultural, something that we should all emulate. He says, Lord, long before I even had my first experience, long before I was born into my family, Long before I had my very first relationship with another human being, I was a sinner. Just a part of who I am. My sin problem isn't out there. It's not in my circumstances. It's not out there. My sin problem isn't here. It came into the world with me. Man, it's the truest thing that we can come to terms with when it, when, when it comes to our sin. And our only hope our only hope from that kind of depravity is found in the Lord Jesus, is found in the one whose love is steadfast and faithful. And so we got to surrender to him. When you realize that your biggest problem, sin, is something that you bring into your relationships, something that you bring into your situations, you bring it into your choices, then the proper response is to repent. Lord, it's me. I'm the problem. I'm broken. I'm a sinner. And so I surrender. Repentance always involves a change of thinking. And then number two, it also involves a surrender of your heart. So not just a surrender of your head and the way that you think, but also surrender of your heart. A change in your emotions or your feelings or what the reformers called your affections, the things that you give your heart over to love. You surrender your heart and the things that you love. You feel righteous sorrow over that sin. See, along with owning our sin, surrendering to Jesus involves godly grief or sorrow over our sin. Look at verse 3 yet again when David says, my sin is ever before me. He's haunted by it. He's haunted by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now, is that enjoyable? Is it enjoyable to be haunted by the conviction of the Holy Spirit? No, like, of course not. But the Bible tells us that that is a gift from God to us, to feel the sting of conviction over our sin. It's actually evidence that he's taken our former heart of stone, and he's given us now a heart of flesh. That's the metaphor that God gives us in Ezekiel 36. He says that apart from him, our hearts were hard like stones. And in Ezekiel 36, verse 26, God says through the prophet, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put it within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. You see, that's what God does. God is in the business of removing our hearts of stone and replacing them with hearts of flesh, a heart that is alive, a heart that is tender, 
to the things of God. So I want you to, I want you to picture this, this metaphor that the scriptures give us in Ezekiel. Like if I have a stone in my hand, right? Like a, a solid rock in my hand and I squeeze it with all of my strength, what would happen? Nothing, right? Because the this, this stone is hard. It's resistant to change. I won't even make a dent in it, which I know might be hard to believe because I look really strong, but it would hardly make a dent in it, right? It's stone-like. It's hard. It's unmoldable. It's resistant to change. And that's what our hearts are like before they've been touched by the mercy of God. But then when we come to saving faith, when the Holy Spirit makes us born again, when we hear the good news of the gospel, we're grieved over our sin and we run to Jesus for salvation, what happens? God, by grace, through faith, he takes our heart of stone and he takes it out and he then replaces it with a heart of flesh. That's what Ezekiel tells us. And so now it's sensitive to the strength of the Holy Spirit. Now it's, it's moldable. It's open to change. And look, if you're in Christ, you will have a heart of flesh that will feel the pain of conviction. And that pain is a gift from God. It's like a warning system, all right? And when my kids had the stomach flu uh, like a, a month ago, um, don't worry, it was a month ago. They're like totally in the clear now. Um, but it was the saddest thing, right? They lost their appetite. They were running fevers. They're throwing up from multiple ends. It was the saddest thing ever. My daughter gets that sick, uh, Geneva. She, she asks like this just sobering question that just melts me. She's like, God, why? Or she says, Dad, why would God let this happen to me? She's like, why am I so sick? And so she asked that uh, when she was sick, and we talked about how all her symptoms, you know, like her fever and throwing up and all, all the different symptoms she has is actually like her body fighting the sickness. That's the way God made our bodies. God designed them that way. And look, that's how godly grief and sorrow works. They're like symptoms. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is a symptom that reveals to us that something's wrong under the hood. That something's in your heart that shouldn't be there. And that you need to go to the great physician, Jesus. You need to rest in him and get the care that you need. There's symptoms that lead us back to Jesus so that we can receive spiritual healing. And just to be clear, there's a difference between what the Bible would call godly grief and worldly grief. All right? There's a difference between godly grief and worldly grief, and, and it, it's fleshed out in 2 Corinthians 7. We don't have time to go through that. But basically, godly grief is when you're sorry about the, uh, the sin that others have to deal with. You're, 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 you're sorry about the way that you've sinned against God, the way that others are affected by it. But worldly grief, worldly grief is when you're sorry that your sin has consequences that, that, that you have to deal with. Godly grief is when you're, you're genuinely broken and sorry about what you did. And worldly grief is when you're just sorry that you got caught and not have to deal with it. You see, one is directed towards genuinely pleasing God, and the other is directed towards preserving yourself. 
You know how we can tell that David has godly grief? He's not crying about the punishment of his sin. He's crying against his sin. He says, wash me thoroughly from it. He calls it my iniquity. He says things like, cleanse me. Against you have I sinned, God. No excuses, no rationalizing, no, yes, I did that, but just full owning of his sin. What about us? What about you today? Like, what, what, are, what are the sins in your life, particularly the sin habits in your life, that, that no one else knows about? Have you considered surrendering that, confessing that to God? Confessing that to a brother or sister in Christ? Man, when you repent, when you repent, are you grieved in a godly way that, that promotes the glory of God and the good and flourishing of others? Or are you just concerned about preserving yourself? Trying to hang on to as much dignity as you possibly can. No, you see, when, when we get engaged in biblical repentance, it not only changes our thoughts, but also changes our hearts too. Number three, it also involves surrendering your hands. Surrendering your hands, uh, which is a metaphor for just a change in the way that you live, a change in your behavior, right? Head, heart, hands. You surrender your behavior over to the Lord. You see, fully surrendering to the Lord results not just in changing how you think, not in just changing how you feel, but also in how you live, a change of behavior. And we see this uh, all throughout the rest of the psalm, but particularly, let's look in verses 7 through 12. He says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. That's a vivid image, right? He says, God, you have broken my heart over this. You feels like you've broken my bones over this, but let them be healed and let them rejoice at your grace and mercy. Verse nine, he says, hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities, create in me a clean heart, O God. The heart, by the way, is where everything flows from in the Bible. Whenever you see the word heart in the Old Testament, that's where everything that you do flows from. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Yeah, cast me, <coughs> excuse me, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. A willing spirit, meaning a spirit that is willing to do good unto the Lord. I want you to notice what David is saying here. He says, look, God, I, I know that I've allowed other things to define my life. I know I've allowed sin to define what is true and good and beautiful to me, but now I see, now I see that I can only be who it is that you made me to be when I find my identity in you. And when I find my meaning and purpose, my ideas for what is good, true, and beautiful in you, that changes everything. And I wanna live for you. He went, 
David went from loving his sin, trying to protect it and cover it up, preserve it. He went from loving his sin to pushing it out in the open, surrendering it to God and just hating it, saying, I'll take this from me. I don't want this anymore. I just want you. He went from trying to hide his sin to handing it over to God and saying, just take, take all of it. All I want is you. You see, sin begins to lose its power when you begin to hate it with all that you are. I found this quote from John Owen where he really um, kind of lays into this. He says, on Christ's glory, I would have fixed all my thoughts and desires. And the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes and I will be more and more crucified to this world. It will become to me like something dead and putrid, impossible for me to enjoy. So intense. (laughs) So emo. But his point is, next to the light of Jesus' beauty, next to the glory of who he is, everything, everything in this world looks dim and dull. And his behavior starts to change as a result. Look in verse 13, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. You see, it not only, repentance not only transforms us to live for the glory of God, but also for the good of others, for the spiritual health and flourishing of others. You see, before, David went hard at protecting himself, looking out for number one, right? But now he wants to go hard at reaching everyone with the mercy of God. He says, I want everyone to hear about your amazing grace. I want everyone to know of your matchless mercy. Look at verse 14. He says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. That tells us that the healing that we get from repentance is not all about you. It's not all about us. It's about how through you, your life becomes a blessing to others. How through you, your life becomes a song that others will want to learn how to sing. Your life begins to overflow with the hope of the gospel and spill onto others. David understood that when he said, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. He's not just thinking about himself and forgetting everyone else like he did before. No, he wants sinners like him. Sinners like me. Sinners like you. Humans like us. To surrender to the ways of God. And to experience the joy of salvation too. That's what David was all about. Man, that's what we're all about. We display the glory of God. We point people to him. And we're committed to doing that. We're like, God, God I want to put your glory on display. I want to point people to you. I want to sing of you. Even if it means, even if it means I'm going to be considered a loser by then. Right? Like what Mark was talking about in Psalm 73 last week. I found this one uh, hymn. Uh, by a guy named Frederick Faber, and he said uh, in the last lines of his, sin, of his, of his hymn, he says, uh, let us then learn to scorn the praise of men and learn to lose with God. For Jesus won the world through shame and beckons thee his robe. And that posture is a hard posture for just super impressive middle-class Orange County people to take on. It's hard for me. 
to be so just undignified and just out there about wanting to sing of the Lord and display his glory and his praises, as some people think you're strange for it, that's, that can be hard, right? But can we commit to care less about the opinion of others and more about the blessing of God? It's a good thing to be a loser if you're with God. I love the way that Ray Orland puts this. He says, God blesses losers in ways that winners can only envy. I want you to look at verse 17 now, where David says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Arguably the most famous verse in this psalm. David's saying, God, I don't want to be a part of anything that is not from you. He says, what you desire is not sacrifices from the altar. That's how it used to be. You know, he says, what you desire ultimately is that my heart belongs to you and you alone. My broken, honest, authentic heart, broken in my sin, belongs to you. Look, don't miss the beauty of this verse. He's not... When he says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, uh, he's, not, he's not trivializing the sacrifices of the temple. No, because those sacrifices pointed to Jesus. What he's saying is it's possible, it's possible to go through all the religious motions and have the wrong heart the whole time. Two things that God loves is the cross of his son, Jesus Christ, and a human heart that embraces the love of Christ through the cross. So what is, what is our response to the cross? Because our response to the cross, like, high five, Jesus, thanks for salvation, you know? Or is it just sober realization? When we look at the cross, that our sin was great, so great, so nasty, so other than God that it required the death of his son. A sober realization where we own our sin. And we say, look, God, I'm, I'm tired. I'm tired of trying to cover this up. I'm tired of trying to put on a mask, trying to put on a front. I just give you my broken self. Heal me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. You see, repentance is what pleases God the most. To the triune God of the Bible, a repentant sinner is more beautiful than even a sinless angel. That's what he wants. That is a sacrifice of God, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Lastly, number four, we surrender our heritage. So not only is it about our head, our heart, and our hands, but also our heritage. In other words, there's a change in the impact that you leave behind. We see this quickly in the closing verses, verses 18 and 19, when David says in his prayer, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now, these verses sound strange, right? Like in the context of all the other ones. Why are they here? 
Why is he saying, do good desire and build up the walls of Jerusalem? What he's doing here is he's praying that God would heal not only what's broken in his heart, but that God would heal where damage has already been done. You see, sin is never a private affair. Never is. It's always going to catch up to you. It's never private. It affects those around you. It's going to affect your family. It's going to affect your, your neighbors, your relationships, your friendships. It'll affect your legacy, the legacy that you leave behind. These verses, verses 18 and 19, they might seem out of place, but I think they're kind of like the climax that this is all reaching towards. Because remember, David was God's man. He was a leader. He was a man after God's own heart. And his personal sin, his grievous personal sin, damaged the public cause of God in his generation. Zion is the name of the city of God. It's a visible social community that, that represents the, the presence of God. And so when David says, do good to Zion and build up the walls, what he's talking about is the walls that have been damaged, the spiritual walls that have been damaged by his own sin. And so he prays that God would do the work that only God could do and repair not just his own heart, and the joy of his salvation, but just repair his character and the, the way that his uh, leadership and the people of Israel have been affected by this. You see, you need to know that your sin is not private. It affects those around you. That's why when we join together as a church family, like we make a covenant together. We make a covenant together because your holiness, it matters to us. It builds the cohesion of our sacred community. We're bound together for the glory of Jesus in this time and in this place. And so you need to know that in some sense, every Christian is a public figure. Your voice, your example, your life for Christ rings out in this generation. And so we got to stand together in covenant with God and with one another to display the love of Christ. You see, every single one of you matters that much. And so together, we're going to say, look, we're not okay with sin. All right? Like, let's, let's not be okay with sin. We're not okay with the damage that sin causes to our souls, to our families, to the cause of Christ. And we want the impact of our repentance to heal what's been damaged by our sin and to leave a lasting legacy and heritage that brings glory to Christ. This psalm, Psalm 51, is for all of us. It's for those who don't take their sins ser seriously because you'll see in this psalm that you'll never know how amazing it is to know the grace of God if you've lost sight of your depravity. The psalm is also for those who think that they're too holy to fall, because we're reminded again that David was a man after God's own heart. And before he committed physical adultery with Bathsheba, he committed spiritual adultery against God in his heart.
like we do all the time. And the psalm is also for those who think that once you've fallen, you can never get back up again. That's just not true. This couldn't be further from the truth. It's actually our brokenness that makes the Savior draw near. It's actually our broken and contrite hearts. Once we've sinned and come back to God and have a broken, contrite heart, once we offer that heart to him, that's the stuff where God, God gets a whiff of that offering and says, that's the good stuff. I love, I love when that happens. The good news for you and me is that as King David is praying these beautiful words of repentance and surrender, his words are ultimately crying out for another king. The descendant of David who would come and face all the same temptations that David faced, but be without sin. That man is Jesus. And because Jesus is without sin, he would be the only acceptable sacrifice to satisfy the penalty for our sin. By surrendering to him as Lord and Savior, our sin is counted to him, and his righteousness is taken and counted to us. When we move from guilt to grace, and we don't have to do anything to get there other than just let go, surrender. And so we surrender our head, our hearts, our hands, our heritage. We surrender all of who we are over to God. We don't have to wallow around in our guilt. We don't have to hide in our shame. We can just run into the presence of a holy God and surrender all that we are before his throne of grace. Are you willing to come to him to repent and surrender your all? Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.